Before we start, I'd like to let you know that you can sign up to our 30-day free digital trial and get access to the New Scientist app. It's available on iOS and Android for your smartphone or tablet. The launch of our in-app audio feature means there has never been a better time to join New Scientist. You can tune in for news, features, comment and more from the world's leading science and technology weekly. Listen to all available audio content from any one issue in one go for maximum convenience, whether you're on the move, relaxing, whatever you're doing. Sign up to our free trial today at newscientist.com forward slash 30 days. That's newscientist.com forward slash three zero days. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your co-host Penny Sarche. And I'm Timothy Revel. This week, we're joined by technology reporter Matthew Sparks. Hi, Matt. Hello there. And you're going to be telling us about a method for investigating uranium from Nazi nuclear programs. And I'll be speaking to the author Jeanette Winterson about the history of artificial intelligence and if AIs could ever write novels. We'll also be hearing from our US team, Leah Crane and Chelsea White, on the discovery of half a million more asteroids. And on top of all of that, we've also got news of some thieving honeybees. And remember, as a valued listener to the podcast, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com forward slash POD20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the magazine, plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. First off, we've got news from Afghanistan about data and equipment that's now in the hands of the Taliban. Tim, you edited this story. So what's going on here? Yeah, so I think it's worth maybe a quick recap of the situation. Mm. Just a couple of weeks ago, the US Pentagon was briefing that there was a risk that the Taliban could take the capital city of Afghanistan, which is Kabul, in 90 days. But just a couple of weeks later, the Taliban has almost full control of the country. And that includes some equipment that was left behind by the US that is related to a massive biometrics program that has been built up over the past 20 years. So biometrics, does that mean we're talking things like fingerprints and scanning irises and that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. So under the direction of the US military, millions of Afghan nationals have had their fingerprints, faces and irises scanned. And the data has then been stored as part of a program that was called the Automated Biometric Identification System, ABIS. So initially, the point of this was to stop members of the Taliban joining the police or the army. But as is often the case with programs like this, it expanded. And it's now being used for things like licensing businesses, registering students and even voting. So what's going on with this now then? Yeah, so that's the key question. So our a reporter called Lindsay Billing has been looking into this for us. And there's good evidence that the Taliban has now seized lots of this equipment. And that includes some special portable kits that were like a one-stop shop for taking and scanning people's biometrics really easily. And as one official who um, wanted to remain anonymous, but spoke to Lindsay, and that person said, they now have everything from the police, defense ministry and election commission. It was left behind in the rush to exit. They have everything. So how might the Taliban be able to use this? Yeah, we we don't really know yet, um, because we don't quite yet know what kind of Taliban we're going to see. In press conferences, which have been you know, surprisingly slick, they've said things like it will be a different sort of Taliban than when they were last in power, and that women, for example, will be able to continue to work within the boundaries of Sharia law. Mm. Um, but they And they've also said that there won't be revenge against the people who had previously opposed them or worked with coalition forces. 
And that's one of the worries for what this data could be used for, because it, it's a really strong data set that ties people to what they were doing before the Taliban returned. So how how's that going so far? Do we know if that's true? There isn't going to be revenge. It, it's hard to say for sure, but the UN says there is credible evidence that the, that the Taliban has conducted executions against civilians and Afghan security forces. But it, I think the thing is, it's not really clear yet whether that's a few rogue members of the Taliban or if that is or will become official policy. I was also wondering how social media fits into all of this, because it's been 20 years, hasn't it, of internet use. Um, can what people have been posting during that time also tie them to what they were doing in the past and potentially put them in trouble? Yeah, that's that's one big difference from last time around. You know, millions of Afghan people now have smartphones, which wasn't the case 20 years ago. Mm. And there has been a big push by many of those people to try to delete their digital footprint to avoid it being used against them potentially later. And we've got a comment piece in this week's mag by Nikat Dad, and she's a lawyer and a privacy expert. And she's part of an effort to try to get materials that help people scrub their digital footprint translated into local languages in Afghanistan, like Dari and Pashto. But she says it's also, it's a bit of a catch-22. Why is that? Well, People understandably want to get rid of this evidence because it potentially links them to the US or, you know, their work as a translator or um, something else that could later mean reprisals. But at the same time, it's that same evidence that could well be used to claim asylum and escape the country. It sounds like a a really impossible choice there. Yeah, it, it really is a difficult situation. Next up, Matt, you're going to tell us about scientists who are working on uranium cubes that date back to the Nazis' atomic bomb programme. What's the story here? So just to help you brush up on your history, the Nazis were working on nuclear weapons during World War II, and they created 1,200 cubes of uranium, about five centimetres on each side, to feed into those experiments. Now, today, researchers at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in the US have one of these cubes in their lab, and they've decided to work on proving its provenance because nobody really knows where it came from or, or how it came to be there. But it's not just a, an historical project, because if they can develop new and better ways to test the origin of the cube, then they could also be very useful for law enforcement in modern cases too. So have they just got one cube? Like What, what happened to all 1,199 of the other ones? So the, the story of the cubes is a, is a long and occasionally mysterious one. Um, the US and Britain had a, had a secret operation to seize material and experts uh, relating to the, to the Nazi program in the closing stages of the war. And we know that the Soviet Union was attempting something similar as well. Uh, the, the US ended up finding a stash of these cubes buried in a field by the, by the Nazis when defeat looked inevitable. And they took around 600 of them back to the US. Now, John Schwante is at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, who advises the US government on all sorts of science relating to nuclear proliferation, believes that most of these would have just been folded into the stockpile that were used in the US nuclear program. And it's thought that the Soviet Union also took some ore, so not not refined uranium, um, and they also fed that into their own program. Now, Schwantes estimates that the location of only a dozen of these cubes is known today, and he's got one of them. So how are they going to go about testing the identity of their cube? So radiochronometry is often used to date ancient samples of naturally occurring radioactive material in rocks and minerals. It looks at unstable isotopes in those rocks and how much of that material has decayed into other isotopes since it was formed. Because we know the the rate of that decay very well, you can date its formation fairly accurately. 
but you need a whole different level of accuracy to determine whether uranium was processed in 1939 or 1940 than you do to date rocks to the nearest million years or so. So instead of measuring the amount of a single radioactive element that's decayed into another, the researchers analysed pairs of parent and daughter radioisotopes. Now, the more estimates you can get, the more confidence you can have in your results. So they might look at the amount of thorium-230 produced from the decay of uranium-234, but they might also look at protactinium-231 produced from the decay of uranium-235. So how far have they got with their experiments? What, what have they worked out so far? Their work basically centres around taking the very long, complicated and time-consuming steps that are needed to prepare samples for radiochronometry and simplifying them. And they're also working on processes to prepare each pair of isotopes for analysis at the same time. And even better than that, uh, they also isolate certain rare earth elements in the same process that they can use to find clues as to where the ore that created the uranium was mined. They haven't definitively proved their cube is from a Nazi program yet, but they hope to announce their findings soon. And um, I'm just curious, 70 years on, how dangerous are these cubes? Are they still pretty radioactive? They are they are radioactive. Um, Schwante says the cubes aren't the ideal paperweight, but handling <laughs> them is reasonably safe. But the cube in his lab is carefully sealed inside three layers of protective containers just in case. Before we continue, we just wanted to tell you about the exciting programme of online events New Scientist is launching in September. Yes, these are a great way to sharpen your mind if, for example, you had a nice relaxing summer break. And these include things like the new science of consciousness with Anil Seth and Jim Al-Khalili's guide to a rational life. The one that really caught my eye is the science of can and can't, in which theoretical physicist Chiara Marletto will be exploring how counterfactuals and considering the impossible could help us solve some of the biggest mysteries in fundamental physics. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, The lectures are each an hour long and will be running on Thursdays from the 2nd of September. You can watch live or in your own time on demand. Visit newscientist.com slash events to find out more. Now, back to the show. Next up, if you've only read one Jeanette Winterson book, it's probably Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, which is a semi-autobiographical story of a girl growing up in a strict Pentecostal family and not conforming to their expectations. But if you've read any more, you will know that she has often looked at the interplay between humans and technology too, including recently in her book Frankenstein, which included a modern take on the Frankenstein story. Now she has gone all in on artificial intelligence. Her new book, 12 Bytes, is a collection of 12 essays about AI, ranging from the Industrial Revolution to If We May One Day in the Future Upload Our Minds to a Machine. I sat down with her remotely and began by asking her what motivated her to look at the subject. I'm not a digital native, but it's already ubiquitous in my life. Mm. And I thought, what, what does the future look like? What's what's going to happen? And how, given that we're on the cusp of a huge revolution, we're already in it, that will change everything about the way we manage our macro and micro relationships, our relationships in the world, our relationships to one another. I thought, I need to really look at that and look back to the first industrial revolution, uh, that huge change in social evolution. It's the moment when fossil fuels come out the ground. You know, we can see where that's led us. In terms of human history, you know, we've only, we've only been here in our recognisable form for 300,000 years. And this sliver of time that has passed since the industrial revolution and now the, the computing technology revolution, which is starting to digitalise everything that we do. I thought, OK, this is really fast. We know the buzzwords acceleration. So 
what can I learn about this? And what can I learn by looking back to the first industrial revolution and seeing how we managed it? And the answer to that was really badly. <laughs> you know, too many people miserable for too long, benefits not, not, not accruing except to the few. And we can see we're already going in that direction again. And, you know, what is the point of history if not to learn from our mistakes? Yeah, there's a really nice bit in the book where you um, mention Mary Shelley, who, who appears in a few of the bites. And yeah. you say that um, Frankenstein is a sort of message in a bottle, a sort of message from then to something that we can uh, look at now and understand more about the present. In what way do you mean that it's a message in a bottle? What should we take from Frankenstein that we can now apply to our understanding of the world today? What I meant by that was it, it's taken 200 years for us to see that, yes, this is happening. This wasn't just a gothic novel. It wasn't just the world's most famous monster. It wasn't a kind of proto-sci-fi. It wasn't even a novel about social conditions or the importance of education. It, it was predicting where we would go and what we, would, what we might do. And, of course, the tragedy of Mary Shelley's novel is that the monster isn't like us, longs to be and can't be, is actually a very different life form, the superficially resembling us. And I think we've got to understand that we can't anthropomorphize AI. I think this idea about what sort of intelligence artificial intelligence could be is one that you mm. visit quite a lot and I think is a really interesting one. And you sort of put forward this idea of maybe we should instead of thinking of it, of it as artificial intelligence, maybe we should think of it as alternative intelligence. You know, it doesn't have to be like human kind of intelligence. It could be something completely different. What could a different sort of intelligence actually be or look like? Well, I think the dystopian fear, and I don't just mean in, in, in sci-fi situations like Terminator, but I mean in the sense that people like Nick Bostrom have just talked about, is really the sense of AI being so other in its goals, ambitions, aims from the human species that we we find ourselves outclassed, outsmarted. You know, the Elon Musk fear as well, isn't it? That if we don't, hmm. if we don't become a blended technology with AI, we will be so left behind that the whole thing won't be run by us anymore. That's possible. But something that doesn't have a limbic system, and we are, you know, in the in the, the economy of the human body, the limbic system always takes priority over the, the neural network. And we know now that you can't have a thought without a feeling. There is no Cartesian split. This is my mind. This is my heart. It's just not true. Hmm. And so when we come to an AI system that isn't limbic in any sense, will we have to teach it emotion? Will emotion even be necessary? What will it be like? We will form a relationship with AI. There is no question of that. You know that if you fell in love with your teddy bear, which we all <laughs> yeah. did, yeah. Uh, you will be able to uh, form a relationship. But what will it be in reverse? Among the people that are developing AIs, the tech companies, and also the researchers, it tends to be one sort of person who's working on that. It tends to be a white man for the most yeah. part. And you explore no, the idea right. that women especially are underrepresented in these fields, mm -hmm. even, even compared to other you know, STEM subjects where traditionally there's been a mismatch. I think it's problematic because this is such a game changer it's very likely that Homo sapiens is coming to the end of its run and that we will become a kind of a hybrid creature to start with. And then we may find that we're not what we were at all in the future. Big changes, big decisions being made over all of our lives. And I think we need 
a more diverse representation anyway. It can't just be largely white dudes with physics degrees and computing science skills. But for women, yes. I mean, we are just over 50% of, of the population of the planet. So we need to be in the decision-making seats and also be able to put our hands up and say, actually, I see this differently. You know, that's one of the great things about diversity. People genuinely do see things differently. Yeah. So, so something I really wanted to ask you about that comes oh. up in the book that's completely different to this and it's very abstract is that you talk about Ada Lovelace and Alan Turing both considering whether machines will ever be capable of originality. And I feel like you're really specially placed to, you know, as a novelist, but also having written this book. What's your view? Do you think AIs will ever truly be creative? Yes, I do. In so much as as AI becomes self-reflective, not just capable of self-updating and managing its own errors and, and reprogramming itself. But yes, at present, you know, as we say, it's a tool. If that changes and it's not a tool anymore, then why wouldn't AI be creative? I can't think of any reason why not, but it might be in a completely different way to the way we are. Could you see a future where we are reading novels written by AIs? Maybe. I mean, what would they be like? I have a feeling that AI might write them for us. It probably would do the business of just running them all through the machine and chucking them out the other end. Yeah, I think AI might look at us and and think it's kind of like writing children's books. Just give us something. (laughs) (laughs) They'll be busy doing something completely different. I wouldn't care about that. I don't care where the creativity comes from. I feel no threat from this potential system we're building unless we screw it up. I want to finish with a a part of the book you talk a lot about in the not too distant future, we might have the ability to uh, upload our brains to another platform, or we might be able to live for a thousand years and technology might really change what it means to be human. And then you ask the reader, would you choose that? Would you choose a life where you can live for a thousand years or you're, you know, you'd be taken out of your body and your brain uploaded to a computer. And so I want to ask you the same. Is that a life you would choose? I might regret it, but I'd probably say yes. I mean, the thing is, you know, it wouldn't be once you're out of the body anyway, you're not using up resources except for electricity. It's only in the bodies that we consume stuff. So in that sense, I, you, we wouldn't be a burden because unless we download ourselves at various times into some other substrate, we're not using up very much and we can still have a chat like we are now. I mean, you haven't got a body. I haven't got a body at this <laughs> moment. We know that we have, um, but we don't need them. You know, there's quite a lot of life where we don't need or use our bodies. I mean, even when you're slobbing on the sofa, you know, apart from using your hand to shove a Pringle in your mouth, not much is going on. So I think the idea of being able to leave that behind especially one that's aging or ill i mean it's been the dream of humanity forever hasn't it i talk about gilgamesh you know the earliest known written text which is which is about our hero going down to the underworld to find out the secrets of eternal life or if death is necessary we've always wondered that the answer we would like is no And now to uh, Thieving Bees. It it says that on my crib sheet, Penny, but is that right? I thought bees were good. Yeah, bees are predominantly good, but it turns out some honeybees steal pollen without performing any pollination services for the plant. I hadn't ever heard of this until science journalist Richard Seymour got in touch about an intriguing discovery involving a Neaton plant. 
Okay, so for those of us a little less botanically inclined, could you <laughs> remind us what is a, a netum plant? Yeah, so netum is a group of species belonging to the gymnosperms, which are uh, the larger group of non-flowering plants. Uh, conifers are gymnosperms, and most people know those. It's things like pines mm. and firs. Um, you might also know cycads and ginkgos, the maidenhair tree, they're, they're gymnosperms. But this group also includes um, this one genus called netum uh, of another kind of plant. So now a type of honeybee has been seen stealing pollen from a netum species. It visits only the male plants, collects pollen, and then never visits any female plants. So no pollination takes place. And the team that discovered this also found that this is detrimental for for the plant because um, there is a moth that normally pollinates these plants. Uh, But when the bees are around, the moth gets way less pollen and, and is much less likely to pollinate the plant. Yeah, those thieving bees. Now that you mention it, the bees with their stripes, they do look a bit like thieves. A bit traditional burglar, yeah. Yeah, traditional burglar (laughs) outfit. They just need a swag bag. Um, So this, this thievery, is it just a quirk of nature or might it be more significant? Well, what really interests me about this story is what it tells us about the interactions between insects and non-flowering plants. So although gymnosperms do produce pollen, most of them are wind-pollinated and none of them produce flowers by by definition, they're non-flowering plants. Today, plant life on Earth is completely dominated by flowering plants. There's more than 350,000 species, but we only have 1,500 of the gymnosperms left. But before around 100 million years ago, when when flowering plants really started dominating, gymnosperms were the most numerous plant life on this planet. Mm, So could those thieving bees be to blame? Possibly, yeah. So there's a hint here that they might have been part of the story. Bees emerged uh, around 130 million years ago, and it's possible that these and other insects were exploiting the gymnosperm so much that it disrupted their reproductive systems. Although bees have been seen stealing pollen from flowering plants too, it sort of seems natural to think that flowering plants might be less vulnerable to this kind of theft because, um, of course, flowers have all kinds of showy things, petals and and delicious nectar that help them to control how pollinators behave and ensure that bees will also visit females and and not just nip pollen from males. It's it's really fascinating and also a bit strange to imagine a, a time where bees and flowers weren't yet locked into this you know, mutually beneficial relationship that we know and appreciate now. Yeah, exactly. We tend to see the relationship between plants and pollinators as this kind of beautifully harmonious thing, but it's unlikely that it started out that way. And I'm really interested to think about how that happened. Right, that's enough about what's going on here on Earth. It's time to get the latest space news from our American colleagues. Over to you, Chelsea. Thanks. Hi, Leah. Hello. So tell us what's going on up there in outer space. We've found some new things, haven't we? That's right. Astronomers have found a whole bunch of asteroids that we've never seen before. Wow. Where are they? I'm presuming they're with the rest of them in the asteroid belt? Yep. They are all in the asteroid belt, which is between the orbits of Jupiter and Mars. So there's nothing unexpected there. And the astronomers found them using 11 years of data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which took the researchers a whole year to sort through. Wow, that's a lot of data. How many asteroids (laughs) did they actually find in there? So they found a little over a million asteroids that we already knew about, plus Mm. about half a million that we think we haven't ever observed before. The thing is, it's not just about finding the asteroids, though. The data also let them catalog which colors they all were and put them into different categories, which is information we didn't have for many of the ones we already knew about, let alone the new ones, which we knew nothing about. 
That's cool because that's useful so we can understand like the makeup of these asteroids and how they may have formed. And that gives us a peek at what was going on in the early solar system, right? Yeah. These asteroids are probably bits and pieces of older, bigger ones. So tracing their common origins can let us know how the planets moved in the early solar system because those movements sort of tossed the asteroids around. So with so many new asteroids to watch out for, should we be concerned at all? Are any of them, you know, potentially a danger to Earth or are they all safely stuck in orbit out where they are? I want to preface this answer by saying that in general, asteroids aren't something to be too worried about just because of how big space is and how unlikely that makes it that anything's going to hit us anytime soon. Okay. Um, (laughs) But with these new asteroids, we don't know yet really what their trajectories are. We'll only know that as astronomers keep observing and tracking them over time. So it could even turn out that some of them are rocks we've seen before but lost track of over the years. We'll know that once we know their trajectories. Um, I remember after you read the paper on this research, you mentioned to me that the researchers had a little nickname for asteroids. (laughs) Yes. In the paper... They do refer to asteroids as the vermin of the sky. (laughs) It's kind of rude, huh? Why do they call them that? Basically, there's a whole lot of them, and their trails and telescope images sometimes get in the way of observations of other more interesting things in space. (laughs) Okay, back to you in London. Thanks, Chelsea and Leia. That's all for this week, so thanks too to Matt for joining us in the pod, and to our guest Jeanette Winterson. As always, do go to newscientist.com forward slash pod 20 to subscribe and enjoy all the content of the new magazine plus audio versions of the stories with a 20% discount. That link again is newscientist.com slash pod 20. Thanks again, spread the word, and we'll see you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.